Lesson 8 for August 18 to 24, for ready for teaching on August 25, the Jerusalem Council. Sabbath afternoon, August 18. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word again this week, we thank you that there's wisdom in the pages. We thank you that as we look at the story of Paul and Barnabas and the other leaders of the church who faced situations that stretched their imagination and also required the functioning of your Holy Spirit in their lives and in their organization. We pray that as we study this week, we may be affected by your Holy Spirit to understand better what the Word says and what it means for us personally. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Acts chapter 15 and verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Let's read that again, Acts 15 verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. After more than two years, Paul and Barnabas returned to Syrian Antioch. Because the whole church there had been involved in sending them out as missionaries, it was natural that they would give a report to the church. The report's emphasis, however, was not on what they had accomplished, but on what God himself had done through them. The object of the report, of course, was the success of the mission among the Gentiles. Though many Jews had also come to faith, since the episode of Cornelius, however, the conversion of uncircumcised Gentiles had become an issue. But now that large numbers of them were being admitted to church membership, things became particularly complicated. Many believers in Jerusalem were not happy. For them, Gentiles would need first to be circumcised, that is, to become Jewish proselytes, in order to become part of God's people and have fellowship with them. Acts 15 is all about the Gentile problem reaching a critical level and about the church working together to find a solution. The Jerusalem Council was a turning point in the history of the Apostolic Church in relation to its worldwide mission. Sunday, August 19. The Point at Issue From the beginning, the church at Antioch consisted of both Hellenistic Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles. We read about that in Acts 11, verses 19 to 21. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however... Men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. In Galatians two eleven to 13 When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles." 
but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. And both groups apparently lived in peaceful fellowship with each other. That fellowship, however, was shattered by the arrival of a group of believers from Jerusalem. Question. Read Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. What was the problem the church was facing? Acts 15, beginning at verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Traditionally called Judaizers, those individuals from Judea were possibly the same ones identified in verse 5 as believing Pharisees. The presence of Pharisees in the church should not surprise us, as Paul himself had been a Pharisee prior to his conversion, as you read in Philippians 3.5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. This group seems to have gone to Antioch on their own initiative, as we read in Acts 15.24. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. Though another episode that also took place in Antioch some time later shows that most Jews, including the apostles, were not very comfortable with the presence of uncircumcised Gentiles in the church. And Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 and 13 reads, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. In his epistle to the Galatians, Paul does not speak positively about the Judaizers, dubbing them as troublemakers and false brothers. Galatians 1.7 reads, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And Galatians 5 verse 10 I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. And false brothers that mentioned in Galatians 2 verse 4. 
whose real motive was to undermine the spiritual freedom of the gospel and bring the Gentile converts into the slavery of legalism. Their point was rather simple. Unless the Gentiles were circumcised and keep all the other Jewish ceremonial laws, they could not be saved. Salvation, so they believed, was to be found only within God's covenant community, and according to the Old Testament, there was no other way to become part of God's chosen people except through circumcision, as we read in Genesis 17, verses 9 through to 14. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household, or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household, or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And Exodus 12.48 reads, A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. In short, Gentiles could be saved only if they first became Jewish proselytes. Paul and Barnabas, of course, could not agree with such requirements, which went against the very nature of the gospel. The aggressive approach of the Judean visitors, however, generated a heated discussion. The word in Acts 15.2, stasis, has the sense of conflict or dissension, Let's remind ourselves from Acts 15.2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Yet the matter was too important to be dealt with at the local level only. The unity of the church was at stake. The Brethren of Antioch then decided to send a number of delegates to Jerusalem, including Paul and Barnabas, to find a solution. So to finish the day, put yourself in the position of the Judaizers. What arguments could you make for your case? Monday, August 20. Circumcision. One of the great issues in this conflict was circumcision. This was not a human institution. There are contrasts here in Matthew 15, 2 and 9. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And verse 9. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Rather, 
It had been commanded by God himself as a sign of his covenant with Abraham's descendants as his chosen people, as we read yesterday in Genesis 17, verses 9 through to 14. Question. Read Exodus 12, verses 43 to 49. In addition to Israelite males, who else was supposed to be circumcised? Exodus 12, beginning at verse 43, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. The blessings of the covenant were not restricted to born Israelites, but were extended to any slave or sojourning stranger who wished to experience it, as long as he were to be circumcised. After circumcision, the stranger would have the same status before God as the born Israelite. As you read in Exodus 12.48, he shall be as a native of the land. Circumcision, therefore, was indispensable for a male to be a full member of God's covenant community. And, because Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, it seemed natural that the Judaizers would insist that no Gentile could benefit from his salvation without first becoming a Jew. Question. Read Romans 3.30, 1 Corinthians 7.18 and Galatians 3.28 and chapter 5 verse 6. What was Paul's understanding of circumcision? First of all, Romans 3, verse 30, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. And 1 Corinthians 7, verse 18, Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Galatians 5.6 reads, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What was Paul's understanding of circumcision? By saying that no Gentile could be saved without first joining Judaism, these men were mixing up two distinct concepts. Covenant and salvation. Being a member of God's covenant community did not guarantee salvation, as we read in Jeremiah 4.4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire, because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. And Jeremiah 9.25 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. In addition, Abraham himself was saved or justified by faith, which happened before and not because he was circumcised. We read in Romans 4, verses 9 to 13, Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised, or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Salvation has always been by faith, whereas the covenant was a gracious provision through which God would make himself and his saving plan known to the entire world. Israel had been chosen for this purpose, as we read in Genesis 12, 1-3. The Lord had said to Abram, Get from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The problem, however, was that By too closely associating covenant and salvation, these believers came to view circumcision as meritorious. God's saving grace, however, does not operate where human works operate. So, to impose circumcision on believing Gentiles as a means of salvation was to distort the gospel's truth, nullifying God's grace and make Jesus of no benefit. And we're going to look at some texts that just tell us all of that. The first one will be in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 7. And that reads, Which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And Galatians 2, 3 through to 5, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And Galatians 2.21 I did not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law Christ died for nothing. And Galatians 5, verse 2, Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Furthermore, it was a denial of the universal character of salvation. As we read in Colossians 3, 11, 
Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Paul could never agree to this type of thinking. And so to finish the day, what's the danger of thinking that salvation comes from merely being a member of the right church? Tuesday, August 21, The Debate Question, read Acts chapter 15, verses 7 through to 11. What was Peter's contribution to the debate in Jerusalem? Acts 15, verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Luke, of course, does not report all the proceedings of the meeting. It would be interesting to know, for example, the supporting arguments of the Judaizers of verse 5, as well as Paul's and Barnabas' responses. Uh, Recorded in Acts 15.12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. The fact that we have only Peter's and James's speeches shows the importance of these men among the apostles. In his speech, Peter addressed the apostles and elders, reminding them of his experience with Cornelius years before. In essence, his argument was the same one that he had used before the brethren in Jerusalem in Acts 11.4-17. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, 
Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you all and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? God himself had shown his approval of Cornelius's conversion, even though he was an uncircumcised Gentile, by giving him and his household the same gift of the Spirit that he had given the apostles at Pentecost. In his divine providence, God had used no less a person than Peter to convince the Judean believers that he makes no distinction between Jews and Gentiles with regard to salvation. Even if they lack the purifying benefits of old covenant rules and regulations, the believing Gentiles could no longer be considered unclean because God himself had cleansed their hearts. Peter's final statement sounded very similar to what he would expect from Paul, as in Acts 15.11, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. Question. Read Acts chapter 15, verses 13 through to 21. What solution to the Gentile problem did James propose? Acts 15, beginning at verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from foods polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood— for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. James's speech suggests he was in a position of authority. And we'll compare several texts here, Acts 12, verse 17, Acts 21, 18, and Galatians 2, verses 9 and 12. And first of all, Acts twelve seventeen. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. And Acts 21.18 The next day Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. And Galatians 2 verse 9 James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. 
But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Irrespective of what he might have understood by the rebuilding of David's tabernacle, which in Amos' prophecy refers to the restoration of David's dynasty, as we read in Amos 9, verses 11 and 12, I will restore David's fallen shelter, I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord's, who will do these things? James's main purpose was to demonstrate that God had already provided for Gentiles to join, in a sense, a reconstituted people of God, and thus they could be incorporated into Israel. Because of this, his decision was that no further restrictions should be imposed on Gentile converts, other than those that normally would be required from foreigners who wish to live in the land of Israel. Wednesday, August 22, The Apostolic Decree Question. Read Acts chapter 15, verses 28 and 29. What four prohibitions did the council decide to impose on Gentile converts? Acts 15, beginning at verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The main issue for which the council had been convened was satisfactorily resolved. Because salvation is by grace, believing Gentiles were exempted from circumcision when they joined the church. Yet they should abstain from four things. One, meat offered in sacrifice to idols in pagan rituals and then served in a temple feast or sold in the market, two, blood consumption, three, meat of strangled animals, that is, meat whose blood had not been drained, and four, sexual immorality in its various forms. Most Christians today treat the dietary prohibitions, prohibitions 1 to 3, as temporary recommendations – because those things were particularly repulsive to Jews. The prohibitions, they argue, were intended only to bridge the gap between Jewish and Gentile believers. It also often is claimed that all other Old Testament laws, including the Levitical food laws of Leviticus 11 and the Sabbath commandment of Exodus 20 verses 8 to 11, which are absent from the list, are no longer binding for Christians. The so-called apostolic decree, however, was neither temporary nor a new code of Christian ethics that excluded everything else related to the Old Testament. In fact, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in Acts 15.28, which we've just read, the apostles and elders of the church reproduced the regulations of Leviticus 17 through to 18 only concerning Israel's resident aliens. 
In the context of Leviticus, these prohibitions mean the renunciation of paganism. Any foreigner who wished to live in Israel had to abdicate those pagan practices to which he or she had grown accustomed. Leviticus 18.30 tells us this. It says, Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came, and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Likewise, any believing Gentile who wished to join the church was required to take a firm stand against paganism. This, however, was just the first step. Once in, he or she naturally was expected to do God's will by obeying those commandments that are universal, pre-Mosaic, and not intrinsically ceremonial, such as the Sabbath, as recorded in Genesis 2, 1-3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And following the differentiation between clean and unclean food, as in Genesis 7 verse 2, Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate. That the decree was not temporary is clear, for example, from Revelation 2, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israels to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. And verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Where the first and the last prohibitions are repeated, implicitly contemplating the other two as well. In fact, historical evidence shows that the decree was still considered normative by Christians long after the New Testament period. And so to finish today, when disputes arise... How can we learn to sit together, to listen to each other, and in a spirit of respect and humility, work through the issues? Thursday, August 23, The Letter from Jerusalem Question. Read Acts chapter 15, verses 23 to 29. What additional measures were taken by the Jerusalem Council concerning the Council's decision? Acts 15, beginning at verse 22. Then the apostles and elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. 
We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friend Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The first measure was to write a letter to the Gentile believers in order to inform them of what had been decided. The letter, written in the name of the apostles and elders of Jerusalem, was an official document that reflected the ascendancy of the Jerusalem church, certainly because of the apostles' leadership over the other Christian communities. Written in AD 49, which is the most probable date of the council, this letter is one of the earliest Christian documents we have. The Jerusalem church also decided to appoint two delegates— Judas, Barsabas, and Silas, to accompany Paul and Barnabas to Antioch. Their assignment was to carry the letter and confirm its content. Question. Read Acts chapter 15, verses 30 through to 33. How did the church in Antioch react to the letter? Acts 15, verse 30, So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. When the letter was read, the church was filled with great joy because of the encouraging message. Circumcision was not to be required from Gentile converts. They also raised no objection to the demands of the letter, the fourfold apostolic decree. The first most serious division in the early church was thus reconciled, at least in theory. At the close of the council, Paul's gospel was fully recognized by the church leaders in Jerusalem, who extended to him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship as a sign of acceptance and trust, as we read in Galatians 2 verse 9. James, Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Yet those Jewish Christians who continued to live by the Jewish law would still find it highly problematic to have table fellowship with the Gentiles, who, for all intents and purposes, did remain ritually unclean. This issue is shown, for example, by the incident involving Peter in Galatians 2, 11-14. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 
The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Ellen White writes in the Acts of the Apostles, page 197, Even the disciples were not all prepared to accept willingly the decision of the council. And so to finish today, be honest with yourself. How difficult is it for you to have fellowship with believers from other races, cultures, and even social classes? How can you be purged of this decidedly anti-gospel attitude? Friday, August 24. In the Acts of the Apostles, page 189, Ellen White writes, The Jewish converts generally were not inclined to move as rapidly as the providence of God opened the way. From the result of the Apostles' labours among the Gentiles, it was evident that the converts among the latter people would far exceed the Jewish converts in number. The Jews feared that if the restrictions and ceremonies of their law were not made obligatory upon the Gentiles as a condition of church fellowship, the national peculiarities of the Jews, which had hitherto kept them distinct from all other people, would finally disappear from among those who received the gospel message. And from the same author, same book, page 197, the Jewish Christians, living within sight of the temple, naturally allowed their minds to revert to the peculiar privileges of the Jews as a nation. When they saw the Christian church departing from the ceremonies and traditions of Judaism, and perceived that the peculiar sacredness with which the Jewish customs had been invested would soon be lost sight of in the light of the new faith, many grew indignant with Paul as the one who had, in a large measure, caused this change. Even the disciples were not all prepared to accept willingly the decision of the council. Some were zealous for the ceremonial law, and they regarded Paul with disfavour because they thought that his principles in regard to the obligations of the Jewish law were lax. End of quote. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, in class, go back to Monday's final question. How do we understand the fact that belonging to the right church does not guarantee salvation? For example, certainly ancient Israel was the right church, but that does not mean everyone in it was saved. If being in the true church does not guarantee salvation, then what is the advantage of being part of it? 2. How to accept uncircumcised Gentiles into the community of faith was one of the first most important administrative issues faced by the early church. What might be some comparable issues in our church today, and what does the example of Acts 15 teach us on how to deal with them? 3. In class, have some people take the position of the Jews who insisted that Gentiles must become Jewish proselytes first before joining the church. 
which they saw, and rightly so, as an extension of the covenant promises made to Israel. What are some arguments, and how can you respond? How could a debate like this show us why issues that today seem so clear-cut could, in a different time, seem much more difficult than they do to us now? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled One More Question. It's by Andrew McChesney from Adventist Mission. Byongju Lee looked with puzzlement at the poem that someone had texted him. He didn't recognize the phone number. Many people might have deleted the message as a wrong number, but not Lee. He texted back, Who is this? His cell phone rang. Who is this? A woman's voice asked. "'You texted me first, Lee replied. It turned out that the caller had wanted to text the poem to a friend, but had misdialed the number by a single digit. Many people might have hung up at that point, but not Lee. He asked one more question. "'Are you a poet?' "'No, I'm an elementary school teacher. I write poems as a hobby.' "'Oh, really?' Lee said." He thought he recognised her accent and asked one more question. Do you live in Busan? He said, referring to South Korea's second largest city. No, I live in Jingju, the woman said. I actually graduated from high school in Jinju, Lee said. The woman asked, which one? And eagerly shared that she had studied up the street from his school. Then the woman asked, what do you do? I'm a church pastor, Lee said. Which denomination? The question made Lee think that the woman wasn't a Buddhist, the second largest faith group comprising 15% of the population. Christians account for 27% of the population of 53 million. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, Lee said. I see, the woman said. Do you know Noah's Ark? Lee was surprised. Noah's Ark is a local Adventist offshoot. The woman explained that she had worshipped briefly with a Noah's Ark group two decades earlier. She had left the group convinced of one thing, that the biblical Sabbath is not on Sunday. That evening, Lee sent the woman a follow-up text message. It was great to meet you today, he wrote. A year later, she was baptised. Evangelism is easy, Lee said. If I had ignored the text message... Maybe she wouldn't have become a church member, he explained. But I tried to form a relationship by asking just one more question. And do you remember what the question was? Are you a poet? Your reader for this week's Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been Dr. Percy Harold. It has been produced in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind distributed under the auspices of the Sabbath School Department by HopeChannel.com.